This podcast is brought to you by 87.7 Barrack FM, Lancaster Student Sound. Hi there, and welcome to the Lancaster Film Club podcast, episode number six. I think we're on six or seven. Who knows? We're putting out so many episodes. Um, this week, we're going to be doing Scarface. Uh, it's a classic film. Each week, we're going to be exploring, dissecting, and analyzing a new film. We're doing this podcast in collaboration with Take Two Cinema and Lancaster University Comedy Institute. If you want to get involved with Bail Rig, um, you can check us out on Facebook, on Instagram. If you want to get involved with comedy, if you want to get involved with cinema, you can check out Take Two or Lucy um, on Facebook and Instagram as well. If you want to listen to more of our podcasts, you can listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get involved in any of the shows we're doing, if you want to get involved in Film Club, give us a message. Uh, we'd love to have you. Um, like I say, we are going to be doing Scarface this week. We're going to be talking about spoilers. We're going to be sharing our thoughts on the film, what we liked, what we didn't like. Um, basically, just going through the story. Um, so if you haven't seen the film yet, check it out and then pop back. This week, we're joined by me, Ollie. We're joined by Owen, John and Tristan. Uh, so Scarface is a 1983 American crime drama film directed by Brian De Palma and written by Oliver Stone. It tells the story of Cuban refugee Tony Montana, played by Al Pacino, who arrives penniless in 1980s Miami, but goes on to become a powerful drug lord. It premiered in New York City on December 1st, 1983, and uh, grossed $45 million at the domestic box office and $66 million worldwide. Um, initially, critical reception was negative due to its excessive violence, profanity, and graphic drug use. Some Cuban expatriates in Miami objected to the film's portrayal of Cubans as criminals and drug traffickers. In the years that followed, however, critics have reappraised the film, and it is now considered by some to be one of the best films in the crime genre. I really liked this film. I thought it was just so badass. Considering it's 40 years old as well, it was like um, Grand Theft Auto as a movie. That's like the vibe I got off it, just telling the story yeah, of this guy who arrives penniless and works his way up to become just this absolute don. And then oh, there is the... <laughs> There is the fall from grace, but I love this movie. I thought it was such good fun. What did what did you guys think of it? Yeah, so cool. Just like as you say, it's just a badass movie. Just like such a cool character, cool concepts. Just just a cool film. Yeah, and absolutely brilliant. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, it's, it's I found fun. I couldn't help. Root for it. <laughs> we 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 both jumped in there at the same time. Uh, yeah. We did. Oh. <laughs> I, I found I couldn't help but root for him, like uh, Scarface, even though he was evil, like, you know, killing everyone, like, uh, you know, it's weird, you, you have to, you feel, you really, I, I found I found I really wanted to root for him, uh, strangely, uh, it, it, a bit like Breaking Bad, in a way, with Walter White, but, uh, yes, oh, excellent film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree that... Uh... That, that you kind of want to root for him because ultimately he's not the only bad person in the film. Everyone's bad. Well, most people, there are definitely some not bad, but most of the people that he meets and have to interact with, they're bad as well. And you think this guy, he's the underdog here. Oh no. Oh no. He isn't the underdog. Oh no. Stop. <laughs> Is he bad though? Is he bad? That's something that, I was thinking about as I watched the film though because he does have a moral code unlike some of the characters in this movie and it's ultimately his moral code which this this is jumping right ahead to the end of the film but it is ultimately his moral code which dooms him as as I, I'm not going to say he's like good but he does have 
some ethics to him as as psychopathic and as brutal as he can be at moments there are certain lines in the sand which he won't cross and i found that to be quite to be quite interesting but yeah i couldn't decide when i was watching the movie i was like is this guy insane or not <laughs> i was like very possibly just a crazy person well i think he kind of loses his morals as we go as we progress through the film so at the start like for example it's good to see um you get that out of his interactions with his family. So at the start, obviously he's been like, well, he's ostracized himself from his family pretty much. And then he rejoins them and um, really is really lovely to his sister and everything. And then he kind of starts to develop this unhealthy obsession with her um, whilst losing all his other morals. And whilst his cocaine usage just builds up, he just kind of spirals out of control massively and his morals go out the window, except for, yeah, he didn't blow up the car at the end, but we'll get to that at some point. But yeah, I think it's, as you say, it's similar to Walter White and Breaking Bad, where you just see, a good character that you care about and then they just become progressively more evil and um yeah good character arc. yeah i i pretty much agree with that i think one of the key things is that he has no choice but to give up each element of his moral code the fact that he ultimately doesn't give up every last vestige of of morality is kind of is what dooms him as you say so yeah. it, ultimately it's it's a failure because to get to the top and to stay at the top of that world you just can't have any humanity left in you mm, yes yes his morals he's got he he won't kill kids and he won't i mean i'm tempted to say he he also never wanted to lie to anyone he always he he was like um this this might be jumping ahead here but he always says i've got two word two things in this world my word and my balls don't break them for nobody and that is actually um an al capone quote um oh, so really? uh, yeah yeah um uh, uh so yeah it's pretty cool because uh, like 1932 scarface was based off al capone and then um 1983 Scarface is a remake and so, well which I only found out uh, a couple of days ago uh, so yeah yeah so he, he won't break his he, he won't lie and he won't kill kids and uh, you know his word is a big thing though and I know you guys were like oh and interesting you seem to like you seem to like think he's a bad guy you've described him as a bad guy but like I he's definitely lusts for power and prestige and he's willing to do brutal things we see him like kill multiple people through the film but we never see him screw anyone over we never see him lie or deceive we see him doing like reckless things but i don't know if he is a bad guy but yeah i suppose we'll we'll talk about it more as the film goes on so it starts off it's may 1980 a cuban man named tony montana played by al pacino uh, arrives in florida claiming asylum um, he's he's come over on a boat from Cuba searching the American dream. Um, when questioned by three tough talking INS officials, they notice a tattoo on Tony's left hand of a black heart with a pitchfork through it, which identifies him as a hitman and detain him in a camp called Freedom Town with other Cubans, including Tony's best friend and former former Cuban army buddy Manolo Manny Ray Ribiera. 
After 30 days of government dithering and camp rumors, Manny receives an offer from the Cuban mafia, which he quickly relays to Tony. If they kill Emilio Rebenga, a former aide to Fidel Castro, who is now detained in Freedom Town, they will receive green cards. Tony agrees and kills Rebenga during a riot at Freedom Town. The murder of Rebenga was requested by Frank Lopez, a wealthy, politically astute man who deals cars and trades in cocaine, as Rebenga had tortured Lopez's brother to death while still in Cuba many years ago. So, yeah, I, I thought that this whole Freedom Town section was pretty cool. I thought, like, the set was pretty amazing, especially during the rioting. I thought it was really convincing. And then there's that bit where um, Rebenga knows that he's been hunted down by these guys which have been assigned to kill him. And he, he sort of runs into that um, room with all the beds and there's the fight, the beds start catching the light. There's all these uh, feathered pillows. It was just, like, a really atmospheric, really well-shot scene and i felt like rebenga's terror as these three guys like hunt him down and stab him no that was a very well orchestrated scene and i can't remember exactly what they were chan- chanting or all the people in the room that were saying something like communists or something oh, was it Liber- chanting it. libertado or something like that that's it yeah. yeah yeah um and just the way they kept chanting that was kind of yeah it was like a whole uh like a whole gang of them just like emphasizing the fear and the terror that um he must be feeling the guy so i thought yeah that was a very cool scene and also it's a good it's like 10 minutes into the film and then um he's killed his tony's killed the first guy so he knows he means business (laughs) does establish Tony very well yes Mm. yeah (laughs) i i also like even before that that scene with the immigration people who are absolutely nasty and homophobic and we don't always see them properly and they've got all this sort of power and you know although although they're kind of a bit useless at having the power they're just nasty and they're holding it over over our our new friend tony montoya who is trying to get the best of them and he has this great line where he says uh, where, where the where the people say what do you call yourself what's your name and then he says back to them and what do you call yourself i enjoyed that but the key thing that i like with this is that we're basically being told from the off that the state the american state the the americans they're basically so much the baddies that we're not even gonna bother worrying about them anymore in this film they're just the powerful people who are letting everyone fall through the cracks and who've caused this whole underworld to kind of evolve. So there's no point dwelling on them in the film anymore, but uh, they're kind of dealt with nice and quickly. You know that they're not going to appeal to the police or anything after that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point, actually, because I just realised, as you said that, there's, there's not really any police in this film. The only policeman that we see is um that the one guy that asked to be bribed later so we just see like they're completely out the picture it's just that our whole frame of reference in morals has got like police and the state almost completely out of it it's just all the the criminal underworld where police are basically meaningless and yeah the only ones that are important are the ones that want to get bribed essentially and that you have to pay off so the way they disregard the state and that is uh an interesting an interesting thing in the film and the police are used as tools of the criminal underworld like we see um mm. frank like when when tony starts to develop a little bit of power frank basically sets one of the police guys onto him so we see the 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 state and the authorities being 
they're not even like challenging this world they're like a part of it and they're their authority is wielded as a weapon within this um the world of sort of drug trafficking Mm. but i thought it was interesting this scene with rebenga as well because it kind of introduces this idea of which is the theme that is carries on throughout the movie which is tony's hatred of communism and communists and we we see he's like he he likes america because he sees it as being free from communism he sees it as being a place where nobody like tells him what to do and he's got he's got he's, he's got liberty but then we we also see the other side of that which is what he does with that liberty and he uses it to kill people to develop this massive drug empire yeah i think it's interesting tony's hatred of uh, like communism and his relationship to kind of american capitalism and how that's depicted in the film well he, yeah, he in the um in the opening scene with him in the room with the policeman um we that's it, it establishes that tony really hates people with power who throw it around and so it's a great like little you know 10 minute scene where we sort of get to know tony at the beginning of the film and we 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 see that um you know we we it, but the scene kind of I feel like it almost exists just uh for the audience to get to know our new our new friend Tony and um yeah uh but yes yeah and he is like really cocky in that scene but you just you do like him don't you I'll put you, um mm-hmm. yeah he does like a really good job of of playing Holding a guy it. who is like narcissistic almost but you're still warm to him and you still root for him because mm, he's got some funny lines as well in that scene yeah yeah, yeah full time. Mm. so after getting their green cards tony montana and manny ray find work as dishwashers in a corner sandwich slash taco shop some weeks later a lopez henchman and underboss omar suarez the man who contacted manny for the rebenga hit job offers tony and manny a low-risk job of unloading marijuana from a boat from mexico to arrive in miami the following night for 500 dollars each tony insults suarez by turning down the job over the little money they will receive and demands at least a thousand dollars for the work after an altercation suarez sets tony up another job to purchase two kilograms of cocaine worth around twenty-five thousand dollars a piece from a colombian dealer named hector the toad a medium to high-risk job for which tony and manny will receive five thousand dollars for their work that weekend tony manny and two other Mar- oh gosh my note i don't what have i wrote here maria litos basically tony manny and two other guys from his crew uh, who they met in freedom town angel fernandez and chi chi then set out to meet hector the toad at a seedy motel on the boulevard in miami beach while manny and chi chi wait in the car on the street tony and angel go up to the hotel room to meet with hector the meeting does not go smoothly as tony grows <laughs> irritated with hector who is slow to give him the cocaine ex- in exchange for money suddenly tony and angel are double crossed by the colombian it becomes apparent that hector does not intend to sell tony the cocaine he has he only wants to steal the money tony has been tony Tony has been given to purchase the product. To convince Tony to give over the cash, Hector dismembers Angel in a shower stall with a chainsaw. After Angel is dead, Tony, about to suffer the same fate, is saved by Chi-Chi and Manny, who arrive in the nick of time to gun down Hector's henchman. Manny receives a minor bullet wound in his shoulder when he downs Hector's henchman. Hector escapes, but Tony vengefully confronts him in the street and shoots him dead in the middle of the crowded ocean drive. Tony and his crew then get away with both the cocaine and the money before the police arrive. This Worst. scene is crazy. It's wild. And this is like, I couldn't, this introduces the kind of violence which we're about to see in this movie. When he pulls that chainsaw out, I was just like, oh no, this is not going to go well. 
Yeah, I was like, oh, that is just a threat, right? He's not actually going to use it. And then he uses it. And it's just 20 minutes in. It's one of the most horrific scenes of violence I've seen in a lot of films. And yeah, it just really sets the, um, the tone and stuff. And it's a good, it's a great juxtaposition between literally somebody getting chainsawed their legs off. And then just outside, the two guys who are still in the car are just chatting up girls and stuff on Miami Beach. And there's a great like panning shot that um, repeats itself and goes backwards. Which, yeah, just I thought it was a really cool shot. Um, and like, the, yeah, that use of juxtaposition, very cool. Mm. Yeah, apparently different. this scene was way more violent, you know. Apparently, like, <laughs> they, they had to re-edit this scene multiple, multiple times to get it past the censors. So I don't, it was it was already pretty graphic. And considering the film's like the early 80s, I, th- I think it was really graphic what they showed. So I can't even imagine like what it was in the original cut. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that would be interesting to see. <laughs> yeah, as you say, especially for the time, that's in quite incredible violence. What kind of garden machinery do they use in the original scene? Like, <laughs> <laughs> lawnmowers and yeah, garden yeah. shears, all sorts of things. <laughs> they lawnmower him to death. He's also most unnecessary as a gangster. It's like, why are you doing? You're just creating a massive amount of mess. You're hauling the, you're hauling this, um, this heavy piece of machinery to every sort of drug trade which you're planning. Like, it's why don't you just shoot the guy in the head and get over it? You're causing a mighty mess. You're leaving like a lot of, a lot of forensic evidence behind. It just seems like most unnecessary. I love quite a good suitcase he's got there as well. He takes the he takes the chainsaw <laughs> out of the suitcase with the cocaine. So that suitcase has got a massive chainsaw and two kilos of cocaine. That's a that's a good suitcase. That one I like that. I think he was at B and Q and he was like, oh, yes, I'll I'll take the chainsaw <laughs> and the suitcase <laughs> for the chainsaw. Oh, yeah, I I love the moment where they're they're about to kind of it's all about to go down and someone ominously turns the TV volume up. Do you think? <laughs> Why are they doing that? But then you find out. As though the TV volume would cover up the sound of a chainsaw. Just Yeah, it was just dialogue. People talking in the TV. It's clearly <laughs> going to cover it up. And then I noticed as well when Manny Manny is like outside, like chatting up this girl. He's got Manny is. It's, this is something I think we're going to end up talking about. But like the depiction of women in this film is clearly of a different age. There is lots of just mm. like grabbing and touching like when manny's talking to this girl he just like starts grabbing her and then i can't remember if she slaps him or not but he's just like grabbing her backside and she just walks off and it is like whoa like that is not that is definitely the kind of thing you'd see in a film even though manny is kind of depicted as like a bit of a womanizer it's it was still a bit like on the nose but yeah he's out there in the car and he like glimpses at the at the 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 flat where it's all going down and there's blood on the windows and i like i was like manny can you not see that can you not see like that is not an indication that this drug deal is going down smoothly no and and he's also, very slow. oh sorry john he's very slow to come up up the stairs to um yeah to save tony it's a, you know he, he's biding his time to make the scene go as dramatically as possible uh yeah, clearly, but, yes. <laughs> but but yes 
Were you guys kind of on Tony's side when this was going down? Because when he started, when he got the chainsaw out and he was threatening to go through, I think it's um, Angel or Angel. I'm not too sure how you say his name, but when he's threatening to go through, just like basically dismember him. The guy is saying Hector the Toad is like, just get me, get me the money, and I won't do this. And Tony is just like flat out refusing. And I was kind of like, dude, like if Tony was my mate, I'd just be like, give him the money. But then I suppose Tony's thinking, if this deal goes south, we're gonna get killed anyway. Maybe that's what's going through his head. I just, I felt like this was an example of Tony just very ruthlessly sacrificing his friend for a chance to get his foot in the door. Hmm, quite possibly. Um, yeah. Yeah, it certainly, it shows like Tony, because he says he'd clearly rather die than ha- hand over the money, even after watching his friend get chainsawed, because he just tells him to shoot him pretty much. And it shows um, he's basically, he's really has, at this point in the film, he's absolutely nothing to lose. So he's not even afraid to lose his life, I don't think. He's just come out of a, from, they don't explain it too much, but a horrible um, uh, period of time in a Cuban castro-led like uh prison so at this point yeah he's just really got nothing and i feel like he's just completely got no fear of death or anything to lose at all yeah and you might say that um refusing to to hand over the money and being killed for that would potentially mean i suppose that he that he retains a sort of honor that wouldn't exist if he handed over the money and then got killed because he handed over the money um so maybe, you know, given that it was pretty much expressed as an inevitability that if it did go south, he would get killed. Um, that's the way he'd prefer to go. Or maybe he just didn't believe that the guy with the chainsaw was going to go through with it. <laughs> I, I thought it was so badass at the end of the scene as well, when like, obviously, um, Tony's mates burst in there and like save the day. And the guy with the chainsaw is like limping, trying to limp away, trying to cross the road. And Tony just like runs out into the street. Just the way he did it as well. He did it with such like swagger. Everyone, like all the all the public are just like spilling out onto the streets. Like what the hell's going on after hearing all the gunshots? And Tony just like, he could have just like shot him in the head from behind. Or he could have even like taken him somewhere private. Because it's not the wisest gangster move to just shoot a guy in broad daylight in front of all these witnesses. But he doesn't. He like make sure he's standing in front of the guy and like holds the gun up to his face and just blows one right through the front of his forehead and as much as I'm like I try not too much to fuel the bloodlust inside of me I did think like <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking badass <laughs> yeah no absolutely and he gives him like a just a few more he gives him basically you know, his death rattle essentially he lets him say like another line I think just before killing him so he's saying proper yeah proper execution that one <laughs> yeah and this is what get to, this is like what launches his career basically this was this went as well as a failed drug exchange could go really in fact it went really well for him <laughs> he like lost his mate i guess but he managed to get all those all the cocaine and managed to hang on to the money so the following night tony and manny meet frank lopez at his house for the first time where tony impresses lopez with not only the return of his cash but with the gift of the cocaine a prize from the botched ripoff Frank immediately hires Tony and his crew into his criminal hierarchy, a representative of a Cuban mafia. But during this initial get-together, Tony also meets Lopez's lady, the blonde and beautiful Elvira Hancock, who's played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who will eventually become the source of tension between the two men. Taking Tony and Manny out to a local club called the Babylon Club, where Frank frequently attends, Tony and Manny see firsthand the high standard of living they have come to acquire. 
Though Frank actually warns against these excesses, Tony is seduced by them regardless. Thus, Tony Montana begins his rise through the ranks of the Miami cocaine underworld. So, yeah. What did you yeah, guys this, think of... Oh, sorry, Owen, go ahead. I just think this bit had... Um, I think it's this scene. The first one in the yeah in the Babylonian where um, Tony gets the morning from Frank, don't get high on your own supply, which is kind of some foreshadowing. It kind of foreshadows the demise of it when he starts using his cocaine a hell of a lot and then essentially just goes mad from paranoia and whatever yeah it's kind of foreshadowing his demise i thought that that little quote there two two examples of foreshadowing then in that scene because like there's that um and then i guess there's the the um the one where uh, they look across the room and there's this the greedy guy um that frank warns him again and i, I guess that's foreshadowing as well because that's yeah, what tony becomes much, yeah it can, becomes that true mm. interesting scene yes. yeah well, um what did you um it says in the notes here which i'm just going to shamelessly admit i've ripped off imdb that <laughs> that elvira hancock eventually becomes a source of tension between the two men now, I don't I think it's quite interesting how Tony like basically makes a move for her and steals her from Frank. And do you guys think that was out of like some kind of genuine attraction to her? Or was it was the pursuit of her connected to his ascension through the drug underworld? And that as part of him becoming the king, basically he's making a statement to Frank and basically everyone else that, yeah, I can just steal your woman if I want to. Yeah. I think it's a bit of both. I feel like some of the, some of what he finds attractive in Elvira is just simply the fact that she is Frank's um, wife. So I'm sure that's certainly part of it. Yeah. Just trying to get his reputation up by doing that. Like she's a trophy almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I do agree that that's an element, but I also think that to some extent, she just kind of wanders in and he goes, a woman. And um, <laughs> he, he's got this kind of obsession. One thing that he says at one point, he says, you've got to get the money to get the power to get the women. And that kind of seems to be his whole idea of what relationships are about power dynamics. So I suppose for him, you can't really divorce the idea of of accruing power from the idea of relationships and women and all of that. So it's more like one and the same thing to him. Mm. But also, just jog my memory when you said when uh, when he first looks at Elvira, we have a very very cliched like slow motion her walking out from the lift like very cheesy 80s synthy pop music as she walks out it's brilliant i really enjoyed that Maybe she gets a lift back then <laughs> yeah she gets a lift from the before. second from the first floor to the ground floor it's like how hard is it really to descend a flight of stairs <laughs> oh dear i enjoyed that all its corniness this film was so 80s just the whole aesthetic and all yeah. the movies it was just 80s through and through wild excess uh lots yeah. of excess lots of all the all the keeping up appearances and stuff very yes <laughs> yeah the suits as well yeah <laughs> <and that. laughs> so 
After three months, Tony has advanced in the ranks in Frank's cartel from drug runner and purchaser to a trusted lieutenant along with Manny. They work low-risk jobs such as being Frank's bodyguards and messengers. Tony continues to grow more attracted to Elvira as he helps her purchase a new Cadillac vehicle for herself and casually flirts with her privately. Elvira enjoys the attention but still seems to think of Tony as a low-level hood. Tony attempts to make amends by meeting with his estranged family. It is implied that Tony's father, a former U.S. Navy sailor, abandoned the family when Tony was little. Since then, his mother and younger 19-year-old sister, Gina, have been living in Miami. Tony shows up at his mother's and Gina's house one evening, fashionably dressed, and offers them $1,000 in cash for financial support. Gina is overjoyed to see her older brother, whom they have not seen for five years. However, Tony's mother has only scorned for him since he turned his back on them many years ago for the quick and easy life of crime back in Cuba and wants nothing to do with him. She's too full of pride to accept his money despite being financially stricken. But Gina, who idolizes her brother, follows him outside where he slips her the money secretly. Gina tells Tony that she wants in on the flashy life that he has going on for him. Tony's love for Gina is clearly genuine for for her, for she's the only person that he trusts and is also obsessively protective of her. Afterward, Manny, who waited in the car that he and Tony arrived in, makes a comment to Tony about how attractive Gina is, but Tony angrily warns him to stay away from her. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, the way that scene ended, because it's it's playing kind of like this soft, gentle, like, lovey, synthy music. Like, the, what's, what's, the, what's the word? What's the... I can't remember the word I'm looking for, but, like, the sound... Like, the, the, I guess it's like Tony's family's Gina's soundtrack... And it's all like soft and synthy. And then Manny is like, she's beautiful. And then the, the the score and his attitude just totally shifts. And he becomes like a dog. He like basically barks at Manny. He's like furious. He's like, don't you dare even think about it. I thought that was so interesting and certainly foreshadows events to come. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's plenty of that. And also, oh yeah, that's right. I, it says up there that it's a new Cadillac, but I swear he buys her a new Porsche. I'm being slightly pedantic, but was it not a Porsche that... IMDB! <laughs> I think it was. Yeah, I liked how, um, actually, um, Elvira just... Like, he had quite a nice Cadillac as it was. A bit of a tacky leopard print in there. And then she just completely refuses to get in it as if it was, like, some muddy wagon or something. Um, it really shows you just how accustomed she is to wealth and, yeah full of prizes and yeah and she calls him the help that really struck me as well because that was a proper rejection on the basis of entirely of his social standing and that's of course something that he wants to change Mm. she might be a bit of a gold digger as she only goes for (laughs) dealers with loads of money and does not care one bit when her first husband just gets executed (laughs) Goes straight with the executor. Yeah, I love the um the section with the mum as well. I love how principled she is, rejecting his money and uh, saying, "Who did you kill for this? I take your." And also saying, and I quote, "It's people like you who give a bad name to our people." I thought that was really interesting, actually, because. You, you you see that she's in, in poverty and he's not, but for her, the moral code is much, much more important than the actual economic conditions in which she lives. And I think that kind of touches on something deeper going on with this film about its depiction of Cubans and people 
generally who are who are immigrants to the United States and who don't have as much wealth and power and who are forced to make these kinds of decisions. And you kind of I, I find that you kind of end up empathizing both ways because on the one hand you can understand why the threat of poverty pushes people to do terrible things, but also at the end of the day there's also moral principles. They're pretty important too. So it's good to have those two voices kind of directly in conflict with each other in that scene. Yeah, I thought that was really good. It really humanised Tony that bit because it, you know, showed he's still got family, family troubles. Uh, his mother pretty much hates him at that point, not for, not unwarrantedly, but um, yeah, no, it really shows like the human size, size to him. And it shows that sort of this greed and aspiration that he has inside of him has always been an element of his character. Like it was a problem when he was back in Cuba as well. It distanced him from his family then and landed him in jail. So it's not it's not just something that arriving in the United States has done to him. It's like a intrinsic part of who he is and which is now being fueled massively by the economic state of affairs in the US. Mm. Because it is kind of like an invert, well, like an American dream story, who a guy from goes from rags to riches, but then, you know, it all comes crashing the down. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly what it is. He he sits in his bath later on. Why are there always scenes of people sitting in their baths in these films we watch? I don't know, but he he does. He sits in his giant bath with his telly on, and he goes, "I have achieved the American dream, more or less." And uh, yeah, there's no difference between what he, he does and what the dream is. So yeah, I like that sort of corrupted American dream thing. Mm, you see. So it's several months later now, Tony is sent to Bolivia to help Omar set up a new, distrib- a new distribution deal with Bolivian kingpin Alejandro Sosa for the purchase of 200 kilograms of cocaine, since Frank is having legal troubles that preclude him from leaving the country. Though Tony was supposed to let Omar do all the talking, Omar proves to be a poor negotiator, prompting Tony to step in and save the deal. They seem to negotiate a deal that on the surface seems favourable to both sides, but so with Sosa overseeing the transportation to Panama and to let Tony and the Lopez cartel take over from there. But Omar insists that Frank would not approve. Sosa seemingly sides with Omar and suggests that Omar use his phone to call Frank. A few minutes later, Sosa hands Tony binoculars and he sees... Oh, hang on. Yeah, a few minutes later, Sosa hands Tony binoculars and he sees two menacing assassins alberto the shadow and the skull execute omar by hanging him by the neck from an airborne helicopter sosa reveals that alberto recognized omar as being an informant for the police several years ago when he worked in new york and sosa has a zero tolerance policy for disloyalty tony insists that he never goes back on his word and that he never trusted omar believing that tony is trustworthy sosa agrees to bring tony on board with him as his north american distributor of cocaine and other drugs but upon their agreement Stosa sternly warns Tony never to betray or double-cross him in any way. Upon his return to Florida, Tony is verbally chewed out by Frank for overstepping his authority, as well as hearing about Omar's death. Tony explains to Frank that for a price of $18 million to pay Sosa for the manufacturing and transportation costs, they will receive 2,000 kilograms of cocaine from Bolivia for nationwide sale and distribution, which will earn them $75 million over a period of one year. Frank is worried because he does not have the many millions millions to pay Sosa for the cocaine, but Tony says that he is in tight with Sosa and that he has established a credit line with him, as well as work out a payment plan where he will pay Sosa $5 million dollars up front and the rest in monthly installments plus in case frank comes up short a few million tony will er- tony will earn the money needed through his own street contracts 
Frank angrily tells Tony that he did not negotiate a good deal and that Sosa merely tricked him into thinking he did. Tony, Tony replies that it's time for them to think big and to expand the cartel for nationwide distribution. With them as the main North American distributors and wholesalers, wholesalers of the Sosa cartel, they will make millions and become the biggest cartel in the continent. Frank warns Tony that Sosa cannot be trusted and that he will sooner or later turn against them for any slight deviation or compromise of his business. Frank orders Tony to stall his deal with Sosa for the time being. Frank then promptly tells Tony that ambitious drug dealers such as himself who want too much and crave power, money and attention do not last long in the business. Tony leaves shrugging with indifference and strikes out on his own. So this is kind of where we see the divide between Frank and Tony emerge, basically. Mm. We start to see like Tony start to rise up um, into the ranks of the of the dealing business. We see like his complete um, uh, dominance, like over the other negotiator that ends up being hung from a helicopter. In quite a gruesome way that. Because usually when you see a helicopter, you know, a guy about to be pushed out, like, okay, it's just going to be pushed out, go splat. Then when you get the, the sharp tug of the rope, yeah, that was quite a, another gruesome death. Um, but yeah, and I thought the power dynamic in the thing, in the this quite long scene between Frank and um, Frank and Tony, it kind of, it shifts between them. Because at some point, um, Frank kind of says, oh, how do you know that um, Sosa in uh, Bolivia wasn't just lying? And you could see Tony kind of chewing that up, but then it ends up just Tony completely... Um, coming out of that like on top really and yeah showing um frank he's inferior yeah i love that moment where he just goes ah if you don't have the millions i'll just get some millions <laughs> and of course at the beginning he couldn't he couldn't do anything near that i mean the extent to which i actually understand the transactions and things that were going on is possibly a bit shaky but it was very, very clear how how quickly and how dramatically he'd progressed to accrue all of this power. Mm, he he progressed pretty fast. We're we're barely. I don't think we're even. We're definitely not halfway through the film at the point of that scene. Probably not even a third of the way through, and he's already talking about making a million here, million there. Uh, it's crazy. You wonder and then why the... he bothers. <laughs> if I could just get a million here or there, that would be enough for me. I'd, I'd be relaxed. <laughs> mm. But nothing's enough for, for this guy. It's mm. crazy. Yeah. Oh. I like how that... at the end of this... Oh, sorry. Scene, I, I like how... I, I love the last line of this scene where Frank is like... You know, the people who last in this business are the people who fly straight, Tony. And Tony goes, you finished? And then just closes the door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a great exit. Yeah, Frank's warning, like, it's not too relevant to the film, though. Like, because Frank warns Tony that ambitious drug dealers, like, don't don't last, basically. But the reason for Tony's downfall isn't because he's too ambitious it's because he's not ruthless enough in his ambition like i, I am just going to jump ahead here because it's like it is relevant to what we're talking about mm. but like it's the the reason he, his house gets stormed at the end and the reason he dies is because sosa basically turns on him and it's because he won't kill a kid like that's that's the only reason for tony's downfall it's not like poor business management although he do, i guess there is a scene with manny later on where he says they're getting a bit lazy but yeah, it's not ambition which brings Tony down. It's the fact he won't kill a kid. 
unless maybe I've maybe you guys read something differently in the movie, but that's that's why it all came crashing down, right? Mm. No, I agree. Yeah, it's like his last holding on to morals is what um, got him in the end. It kind of shows that you absolutely have to be a complete psychopath with no morals and no, um, you know, no. I guess evil is one word for it. I get to be evil to actually stay in the business and keep on top, which is, um, yeah, an interesting take. Yeah, I, I agree that that's the trigger, but I also think there's an element to which it kind of feels inevitable. Like, it's yes. kind of inevitable that eventually he's going to build up and build up until he really annoys someone and they get him killed. And it, it felt more like a sort of circle of life than uh, anything else so it's if it wasn't that it felt like it would probably be something else but i do agree that it's significant that the thing that triggered it was actually him not being ruthless enough but again you're inevitably going to slip up i suppose Mm. i guess he was kind of not flying straight in the way that he was Maybe to fly straight is to just always obey the commands your superiors give you. And he wasn't doing that. But, um, yes, yes. Yeah, I thought Frank was kind of giving him a warning, like, there are certain rules to this world, and if you try and grow too quickly or grow beyond them, then there will be consequences. But Frank is sort of seen as just, like, this thing, this, like, obstacle to be overcome almost but frank presumably he's been doing this for like a long time isn't he and i feel like maybe if tony was a bit wiser he would have recognized that frank had been in this game for some time and he was uh, still alive um and that maybe there was some more there was some more like wisdom to be gained from frank but tony's got no time for that he just wants to be the fucking king of the world So at the Babylon nightclub that evening, Tony is approached and shaken down by a Miami police detective named Mel Bernstein. He proposes to tax Tony on his transaction in return for police protection and information. Tony is distracted by the sight of Gina dancing with a local drug dealer. He follows the two to a restroom store where he berates Gina for her promiscuous conduct. Berate is kind of like a gentle word for like what he does, basically. <laughs> he like slaps her, doesn't he? Like he assaults her. Yeah. He asks Manny to take her home. On the way, Gina admits she is attracted to Manny. Manny wards her off, mindful of Tony's obsessive protection of her. Back at the nightclub, Tony is attacked by two gunmen, but manages to escape, killing them both despite being wounded by a gunshot to his left shoulder. Suspecting Frank sent Bernstein and the hitmen, Tony asks one of his bodyguards, Nick the Pig, to call Frank after Tony arrives at Frank's office at 3am that very night and inform him the hit failed. Tony, Manny and Chi-Chi visit Frank at his car dealership back office, who is... Tony, Manny and Chi-Chi visit Frank at his car dealership back office. He's with Detective Bernstein. Nick calls Frank, who confirms his involvement by playing the call off as Elvira telling him she'll be home late. When it becomes apparent that Bernstein, who is armed, will not help him, Frank begs for Tony's forgiveness, saying that he can have Elvira and $10 million in exchange for sparing his life. Tony will have none of it, and Manny coldly executes Frank. Bernstein insists that he could be a valuable ally for Tony, but Tony disagrees and kills him too. Tony, Manny and Chi-Chi then look upon the late Frank's personal bodyguard, Ernie, and offer him a choice of being killed or work for them. Ernie naturally agrees to work for Tony. I like laughed out loud at that that funny little point there where they give Ernie a job. I was like the tension of the scene and the, the execution we'd just seen. And when he gave Ernie that job, I was just like, I like literally laughed out loud. I was so relieved for him. 
in that scene is weird because uh that that scene that that little exchange struck me as weird because tony says do you want a job ernie and then some guy comes in from the side and goes <laughs> hey man you got a job eh? and that's like <laughs> exits the frame again <laughs> it's like where did you come from you just watched two people get murdered and you're just like hey my man's got a job <laughs> but yeah no, no you should always like... congratulate someone on getting a job <laughs> no matter how many no matter people have been murdered. <laughs> yeah i mean he did have a job already <laughs> he was unemployed for the five seconds between <laughs> Frank dying and Tony <laughs> giving a quick turnover. <laughs> but yes, yeah, that bit with um with Gina, I thought that that, that kind of one well, is one of the first nasty sides. Is we start to see him become way too of a protector of Gina, and then while simultaneously absolutely slapping it down in a very very harsh hit, that was a proper shock to me. I think that made me start it startled me somewhat um but yeah i feel like that's when we start to see a bit the the nasty side of tony's overprotectiveness um yeah yeah there's a line when i can't remember who says it uh but they say he was trying to protect you which i i kind of thought well it's an interesting way of of protecting <laughs> somebody True. how do you think he's so obsessed with gina well, they talk about it, don't they? Um, Manny says he's Gina's the one pure thing in his life, uh, and you know that. Uh, so yeah, he Gina's Tony's last last link to uh, a good a, a normal life, a, a good life. Maybe Tony knows he's a bad guy, but maybe deep down he kind of almost wishes he was good, and Gina. Uh, is is a link to that, but that's wrong. He probably doesn't wish he was good, but uh, yes, that's what Manny says. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like it's no coincidence that um, the only thing that's true in his life is the thing he hasn't seen for five years and hasn't had the opportunity and chance to corrupt yet. And I think we see that during the film that she does get corrupted. The last thing pure in his life, he also corrupts, just like he ruins everything else for himself he's kind of self-sabotaging yeah the things he hates most in gina are the things which he like has introduced into her life mm. so it's kind of yeah, like exactly. a form of like self-hatred because everything that he hates in her is the stuff he's put in her mm. like the guy she's dancing yeah. with is like a drug dealer i think there's a bit where he like expresses like anger that she's that she's um doing drugs i think that's the scene maybe i've just made that bit up but it's like yeah it's a soon it's like a, everything he touches dies literally in the movie yeah. and i mean she's only at that club because he just gave her the money to yeah. go to the club and told her and what to she's wearing all her stuff. clothes yeah mm. um but yeah and also the later scene the the whole showdown with um frank i thought that was a uh, that was quite a powerful scene. The way he reduced the man to just groveling at his feet. That was um, a very yeah, powerful scene, I thought. And I thought it was a very oh, oh, clever yeah. setup. The way he told his um, mate to call them while he was there. Just so he, that was like a guarantee that he knew when Frank lied on the phone and thought and said it was Elvira. That it, yeah, it was definitely, he wasn't getting the wrong guy. He was being meticulous and um, yeah, precise. 
but he did also pretty much play with his food there. He said, oh, I'm not mm. going to kill you. My guy is going to kill you. <laughs> the old that switcheroo. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was genuine, dis- like Frank was genuine. Um, sorry, Tony was genuinely disgusted at Frank in that scene. Sorry. Is it, can you guys hear that washing machine in the background? Does it sound all right? Do I sound fine? Yeah, no. yeah, fine. yeah. There's a washing machine going on in the background. It's quite loud. But what was I saying? Yeah, when Frank is like playing with his prey, basically, he's he's disgusted. Like at one point, Frank collapses by his feet and like touches his feet, and Tony is like, "Get off, get off!" He's like wants distance from Frank, and I I think it's disgust, and he's disgusted by the deception, by the duplicity, by the fact that like as we know. Tony's word means a lot to him. His like his balls and his word mean a lot to him. You know, he's like he's a drug dealer, but he's like as he's he's not he's as honest as you can be a drug dealer. At least that's how I view him. And he's disgusted by this attempt for someone to stab him in the back. Like he'd almost like be more respectful if Frank just like openly declared war. But it's the fact that Frank tried to hire someone to secretly do him in. It's just like, it like literally grosses him out to such an extent that he can't even bring himself. He's got to like get his crony to execute him because it's like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. I thought it was interesting Mm. as well, how he killed the police officer as well. And just no consequences for that whatsoever. Like no consequences for killing this like fairly senior police officer, but there are consequences later on for pissing off this like Bolivian drug lord and it kind of uh, connects to the relationship we know the US certain elements of like the US law enforcement authorities the role they played in the drug trade which as most of us know was not always as combative as they admitted to officially yeah absolutely and also I was thinking because you just jogged my memory there because during the film he likes the the insult cockroaches and then there, Frank, he literally treats him as if he was a cockroach. He, like, kicks him off when he's on his shoe. And as you say, gets his friend to kill him. So it uh, could be an embodiment of that, perhaps. Nice. Good point. <laughs> mm. So is his problems apparently solved. Tony begins a profitable relationship with Sosa over the next year and a half. Tony marries Elvira, buys a huge mansion complete with surveillance cameras and numerous luxury items, including a tiger, if I remember correctly. And Tony even sets up Gina um, in a business with her own beauty salon, complete with a paid staff. Manny and Gina soon begin a romantic relationship, but they keep it a secret from Tony, who had firmly stated to Gina that he does not want her dating anyone, at least not anyone in the drug dealing business. As Tony business grows, so does... As, to, as, Tony, as Tony's business grows, so does his cocaine addiction and paranoia, and he begins to spiral out of control, the beginning of the end. His wife, who becomes further addicted to cocaine, becomes bored and emotionally distant. Tony's banker, Jerry, informs him that laundering the increasing flow of drug money has become increasingly difficult, so he will be charging higher fees, up to 10%. A Jewish mob boss named Mel Seidelbaum, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Seidelbaum, contacts Manny, offering his assistance. However, as they are cleaning out the money, Seidelbaum offers, reveals himself to be an undercover cop and arrest Tony along with Chi-Chi. After posting a $5 million um, in bail, Tony's corrupt lawyer, George Sheffield, tells him that although he may get cleared of the corruption and money laundering charges, Tony will probably have to serve at least three years in prison for income tax evasion. Manny suggests that he take it, as the American prison system is nowhere near as harsh as its Cuban counterpart, and the right legal loopholes could trip the sentence down to six months. However, the strung-out Tony yells that he would rather die than spend a single day in jail. 
<laughs> I'd kind of forgotten about this bit of the movie. Like this, like he was going to jail. I, I don't know how I. Oh, I remember how why because it becomes irrelevant later on, doesn't it? Just like a few scenes later. But mm. yeah, I love that montage as well. There's like a montage halfway through the movie mm. and it just shows like everything going, well, everything going brilliantly at first. And then there's little hints that it's not as good as it seems. We see, I remember the one scene of Elvira doing the cocaine and her, her addiction certainly ramps up um, after this point. This, that montage though was brilliant though. And like so cheesy uh, and fantastic. Sure. <laughs> so well, oh. what did we think of when that bit where like they're they're counting the money and tony is like they're counting the money and the guy's putting it through the machine and tony's doing it manually or something and there's like there's literally i think it's something like they're dealing with like quarter of a million dollars and it's out by like one or two thousand dollars and tony like notices it and he's like He's just adamant. He's not letting it slide. He's like, even though it's $1,000 out of $250,000, he's like, I am not letting that slide one bit. And it really, I don't know if that is depicting a change in his character that he's becoming so concerned with a minutia like that, or if that was something that was always part of him. And the film is indicating that that kind of obsessive nature is what is required to become a success like Tony. It was kind of an interesting little moment. Yeah, I think certainly it kind of exemplifies some of the greed that he just developed. So it could be that. But it also could, as you say, it could just be part of his character where he just is, you know, is true to his word, doesn't want a dollar less, doesn't want a dollar more. Uh, well, he does want dollars more, actually. <laughs> but um, he's meticulous for like his own, uh, yeah, his own money and stuff. Yeah, it could be either, I think. But I think it is likely to be a sh- uh, like a showcase of his greed developing. I I agree that there's a lot of greed going on there, but I also think you might say that it's rooted partly in the fact that he, he remembers how important this amount of money can kind of be because he remembers how how little he had in the past. You know, he gave his family a thousand dollars and that's very very small amount compared to what he's dealing with but it was enough to be significant at the time and and i wonder if if that sort of jealousness is rooted in his understanding of what it's like to have none but then i think actually he's not worried about having none he's just worried about having more and more and more so i think it's more about feathering the nest than anything else that's just the thought i had yeah, it's kind of like twin forces inside him, isn't it? As, as I suppose it is for like a lot of people. It's it's the fear of poverty, but then it's also the lust for more. Which, yeah, con- yeah, sorry, conversely no, to that being developing greed, maybe it is showing that he hasn't quite lost touch with you know his poverty past because at the end of the day, that is still, as you say, that's fifteen hundred dollars to him, and from where he's come from, that's like you know so much money so yeah it could be either i'm not sure a bit ambiguous and i think it's interesting as well how um like how um he really wants to avoid going to prison he values his freedom above like everything it's like a huge part of his character it's why he like hated cuba it's why he came to the u.s and he really values his status as as a free man or maybe rather he values 
what he can do with that freedom in terms of acquiring a kind of power and influence and prestige, which he never could have done in a, like a society like Cuba. It's so. great how much how much is left to the audience's interpretation when it comes to Tony's character. You know, there's I, I love I love the fact that we have questions about him. Like, is he? wanting to be absolutely certain of the amount of money because of this reason or because of this reason it's it's i just think that's a mark of a really really well written character uh but yes yeah complex mm. another part of his character as well is that he never um even though he's developing like a power all this power he remains very connected to his business like you know he's involved he could very when you're dealing with that amount of money it'd be very easy for him to to task jobs to sort of j- junior members of his organization but he's like no i want to go and like count the money during the montage we see him like going and dropping the money off at the bank like he's very he's very connected to his business and i think like this is a point like a few of you have raised like i don't think he ever forgets where he's come from and what his roots are he never although he enjoys luxury i, I think he always appreciates it for what it is so after hearing about after hearing about Tony's arrest, Sosa, not wanting to lose his main distributor, offers Tony a way out of going to prison. He calls Tony back to Bolivia, where he introduces him to his cocaine board of directors, a group that includes a sugar land baron, Bolivia's military chief and a mysterious American named Charles Goodson. We assume he is a corrupt CIA officer because Sosa guarantees that the IRS will not be able to send Tony to jail. I didn't I didn't um, assume that, to be honest. I just assumed he was that corrupt like irs guy but i guess he could be like an intelligence guy given what we know like the cia's mischief in south america over like this entire century really and today but this help comes at a price a bolivian journalist is attempting to expose the ongoing corruption in the bolivian government involvement in drug trafficking (coughs) and his crusade and his crusade to begin to hurt sosa and his partners sosa will be sending alberto to new york to assassinate the journalist but he needs tony and his crew to provide some extra muscle tony is clearly disturbed by the assassination since it is against his custom to kill a man whom he sees as a civilian plus tony has never killed anybody who didn't wrong him personally but seeing no other options tony reluctantly agrees to help sosa with the hit in the meantime, Tony, Tony's marriage to Elvira finally ends when, after a bitter altercation at a local restaurant, she finally expresses her contempt for him and the lives he had led her. Or, uh, and the, you, what? What? She finally expresses her contempt for him and the. I don't know what that sentence says. The lives he had, lies he had led her. He walked. Basically, there's this huge like um, fight at the restaurant, and he like storm. She storms out drunk. No, I don't know if she's drunk. She storms out. He storms out drunk. And that's actually the last we see of Elvira. Uh, so I'll just like leave it there. We can talk about we can talk about this section of the movie. These notes completely left out the. Hang on, is the order of this right? Doesn't he go to New York? He goes and sees Sosa in Bolivia, right? And then he yeah. goes to New York, and then there's the assassination attempt, attempt, which doesn't go to plan, and then there's the scene in the restaurant. Is that right? I think no. I think the restaurant scene is beforehand i guess the, it doesn't the restaurant matter. scene is before the the assassination attempt i know this because i wrote he doesn't kill kids after i wrote all of the stuff about you're the bad guy which is also fun all right okay so let's just leave, let's leave it from there then like so there's this massive fight at the restaurant and then tony storms out but so let's talk about those two scenes like the kind of the meeting in bolivia with all these guys who sort of expose the real the real like 
dark heart of the drug business and just how just how like high up the corruption goes basically and then let's talk a little bit about this dress this restaurant scene which is just like brilliant and it's the last mm. we see of Elvira actually after she storms out we don't see her again yeah I think it's testament to like the power that the the this board of directors has because he's tried everything in America to um to get rid of his prison sentence and get it down as low as possible and as soon as he goes to all the way to Bolivia he gets told that they can literally just wave it with like just a wave of their hand it completely goes away essentially all he has to do is pay a fine so again it's just shows how much more powerful these drug lords are than like the authorities and just yeah just how much power they have it's quite incredible and the fact that like most of them are in fact um corrupt police officers themselves or you know corrupt politicians from bolivia just shows you know they're all they're all in on it as it were yeah i thought it was interesting that they wanted to kill this journalist for like exposing it because I don't know. We all know now that like the CIA were involved in like all this drug smuggling and stuff. But like, did did they know back then? It'd be interesting to go back in time and like ask people what their understanding was. Maybe it's just something we know now because of you know the stories have been kind of exposed. But yeah, maybe mm. it would have been more. Maybe it would have been more like revolutionary back in 1982 for a film to basically just be telling the American people that the like the U.S. law authorities are complicit in the the drug trade. Mm, that's true, actually. I wonder how much they knew. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of stuff always gets declassified after some decades, so it's kind of, it's hard to say how much people would have known. So, yeah, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, so this scene at the restaurant, I really like this one because um, I really like the fact that we see, so... Tony at this point he's achieved everything he's in a really swanky restaurant with you know uh with wine cocaine a hot wife everything he wants but then he suddenly comes to this realization like is this it is this it I just eat nice food I I uh, drink wine is this it he really comes to the realization that you know money doesn't buy everything um and he just becomes kind of disenfranchised with his whole life he just all of, yeah he just kind of wallows in his pit of extravagance <laughs> he really just yeah can't really the way out it's very dissatisfying yeah, it's exactly what what she said to him which was you know can't you see what we're becoming we're losers we're not winners we're losers and he's just he's lost all his humanity he's just got stuff and he's sitting atop his empire of dirt and it means nothing even though mm. it is exactly the same trappings as you say as the american dream and that's why he's gone on, oh, capitalism's great. I've worked hard for this. That's one of the things he says, which is kind of, that. that's not in the restaurant. That's when he's in his bath. I just love that he says that when he's in his bath. I've worked hard to be in this bath. Um, he's not working hard at all. Um, but then it does all crumble around him because, of course, it does. He's a useless idiot who doesn't realise that what, what's important in life and he doesn't respect his wife he doesn't respect anyone and so all he's got is stuff and the food it's not as important as the relationships that that's all gone now he, he didn't hold on to the right things what can you do 
it's almost like this film's split in half for me and it's kind of it's when we have that montage halfway through that i feel the film really shifts like the first half of the film is all about his ascent and him gaining power and then the second half of his film is about it all just like crumbling in his hands i think it's really interesting and i think he enjoyed that ascent way more than actually reaching the top of the mountain he reaches the top of the mountain and then he is like as a lot of people are they think like oh well I'm still not satisfied. I've got everything. I've got the cars and the women and the money and the house and the, the, the bedroom with a jacuzzi in it, such luxury, but he can't, he can't, um, it, it's not providing him like ultimate meaning. And, and there's this one absolutely brutal scene and brutal line in the restaurant where he says like, he can't even have a kid with Elvira because her womb is so polluted. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, what a line. That is just a, like a savage. That is a sledgehammer to the face. <laughs> it was just so. And also. Yeah, sorry, Owen. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when he. um, I mean, at this point, he's very intoxicated and he kind of just stumbles out the restaurant drunkenly rambling to all that because he's surrounded by loads of, like, um, just rich people that you presume, or he presumes, got their money at least legally but he the way he views it he doesn't see them as any more like um like they don't seem he doesn't see them with any more morals as he has he just sees them he just sees he's the only true uh like non-liar of them all and they're just kind of posers pretending to be you know rich and everything where he's actually worked hard for it you can see he really got um had his taste and he's really bitter about them which is uh yeah it's an interesting window into his character yeah i i think that's a really interesting and compelling point is that he sees all these people who are respectable because they got their money through some other means that's seen as respectable but he thinks that there's no difference between what means you 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 got that wealth through because you're still perpetuating something toxic and He's willing to be honest about that, and he ends up being scapegoated because it's much easier for people to say, well, these people are not legitimate and these people are, and to say the whole thing's not legitimate. But of course, he thinks the whole thing is legitimate, but um, I I suspect the film itself has a slightly different view on that uh, than he has himself, that none of it is legitimate, perhaps. And if he'd been rambling in his bath, after doing something perfectly legal, like exploiting child labour, then it would still be exactly the same. Well, so Tristan, yeah, do you think this is kind of like, do you think this film is like an attack on the American dream? And like, is it an attack on capitalism? Is that kind of how you see it and what this scene is articulating? That is basically how I see it, yes. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that it's, yeah, I, I do think that's more or less where it's at. I think it's it's willing to condemn Cuba and and the Cuban regime just as much, but it will it is very much centered on condemning American capitalism first and foremost. Yeah, I think so. So interesting. I, I, I love on the way out as well, just like a tiny little thing, but we see Ernie like stuff a load of money into the uh, like the maitre d's hand. I was just like, oh, I just like that little detail. I don't know why, but I like picked up on it and I was like. Yeah, he probably he did kind of ruin like a lot of people's night. 
Uh, so Tony with his two. Yeah, this is where we go to New York. I got a bit confused before. So Tony, I think that's why he's so pissed off in this scene as well. I, I honestly think that's the root of it. I know there's like what, everything we've talked about. There's the, the, you know, he's reached the top of the mountain and he's still not satisfied. But I also think a big part of why he's so angry is because of what he's being asked to do. It's like a, it's like a hangover from the earlier scene because he knows now he's burdened with having to do something which really does go against his moral code, which is to kill a civilian for just speaking the truth, you know, because I don't think Tony, Tony doesn't, Tony would just have him speak his truth and just get on with doing what he's doing regardless. But the other sort of men on the board can't have that. So Tony with his two trusted henchmen, Chi Chi and Ernie, along with Alberto travel to New York city and Alberto places a bomb under the journalist's car with the intention of detonating it outside the UN building before the man addresses the General Assembly and exposes Sosa's cartel to the world. But Tony has second thoughts when the journalist unexpectedly picks up his wife and children. Tony, saying that the team was only supposed to kill the journalist, shoots Alberto to, present, to prevent the journalist's family from being killed. When the authorities later discover the unexploded bomb underneath the journalist's car, they realise that an execution had been planned and increased the amount of security protecting the journalist. Sosa is now the primary suspect and Sosa vows to get even with Tony. Um, should we just talk about that a little bit before we sort of because this is where after this is when it, it very quickly unravels after this this is after he shoots the shoots the guy in the face which I was so pleased when he did I was like <laughs> I, yeah all, all the way through I was like Tony's not gonna really do this is he and that would have if he had gone through with that that would have totally changed my perception of the character because I think all of the goodwill I'd built up towards him despite the executions on the street despite running the business he, he he does all of my goodwill was based on the fact that he never does just kill anyone innocent and he does he is like an honest guy to some extent and if i'd seen him just kill those like killing the journalist would have been like pretty bad but killing the two like killing his wife and the two girls in the back of the car would have just been like i, I would have been rooting for his demise as soon as i saw that pretty much so when he did shoot that guy in the face he just blows his brains out right outside the un and the police don't do anything like surely they would have heard the gunshot and we see like the splash of blood and <laughs> there's all this security outside of the un and they're just like oh, all right nothing to see there <laughs> and then he like he starts screaming at him like oh, i can't remember what he says but it's like hey look at you now look at you now <laughs> I was like, yeah i was I found that bit kind of creepy, the fact that he, he kills the guy quite quickly, almost like an impulse. Well, not an impulse thing. He kills the guy anyway. And then he continues talking to the guy and saying why he killed him for like the next 30 seconds when the guy's just completely mashed on the window. And it's just, it's a strange thing that we see him like shoot and then not ask questions, but like talk to the guy before shooting him, explaining why he did. it's just like a weird, perverse um like murder it's different to like the first the first few murders when he talks to them for ages gets them groveling on their knees and so i mean he has to do it in the time pressure of being in the car but even so i thought it was just a weird thing to see himself. him talking to the dead man yeah quite possibly actually yeah it's not the last time he talks obsessively to someone who's dead oh yeah that's true actually forgot about that <laughs> did you guys when you were watching this um did you were you surprised when he killed that guy was it like a shock or did you kind of no, did you kind of expect that he wasn't going to go through with it i yeah, was shocked it was, yeah i think it was an escalation it was it, i mean i wasn't shocked at tony's um the direction of tony's decision 
but I was shocked that he took it that far to murder a guy in a moving vehicle. It, um, you know, like, uh, yeah, me, I don't know what I was expecting, but not that. Yeah, I kind of thought he'd veer off the road and go off somewhere else far away, but I didn't expect him to, to shoot him in the face. But it makes sense, because at the end of the day, he shoots him for exactly the same reason that he would have veered off the road, because he just thinks it's so morally reprehensible to to even consider doing this, and I, I can't fault him at all. I've got to respect that. The only thing that I can respect is that he, he really takes out this really awful, terrible man. Mm. I think it's an, also, I think the actor who plays that guy also appears in Breaking Bad. Um, <laughs> the, the guy, yes, it it's quite, quite cool. Yeah. Um, I think he plays Hector in Breaking Bad. Owen's on it. I think that's right. Yeah, oh. it does ring a bell. Yeah, I think you're right. Is the character he plays in Breaking Bad a, a mute? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's oh, right. Oh, yeah, it is Hexen. the same guy. Very interesting, yeah. Cool. Mm. So, returning I've to... I've never Ma- seen Breaking Bad. No. Oh. We might have to watch the <laughs> entire series for a review. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You have to do homework for this podcast, Tristan. You haven't seen all 64 50-minute oh. episodes <laughs> of Breaking Bad. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> So returning to Miami, it all goes pretty down downhill pretty rapidly from here. So returning to Miami, Tony discovers that Gina and Manny, who opposed the trip to New York, have disappeared. Tony visits his mother again, where she angrily tells him about Gina's descent into an immoral life and accuses Tony of corrupting her with his flashy lifestyle. After getting Gina's home address from Mrs. Montana, Tony goes to the house in nearby Palm Grove. Much to Tony's surprise because Tony is a moron, apparently, in regards to Manny's relationship with Gina. Manny unexpectedly opens the door in his bathrobe. Tony then sees Gina in a nightgown at the top of the stairs. Enraged that another man has obviously slept with his sister, Tony shoots Manny dead. Hysterical, Gina reveals to Tony that they had just been married and were going to surprise him. Tony, riddled with guilt, has Gina taken back to the mansion. Yeah, this part was brutal. This is when I wanted him to die could no longer root for this man oh he won't kill children oh no he will kill his sister's husband especially when he says earlier in the film that Manny is his brother and then he just murders his brother very quickly like he was still at the door he didn't even didn't even come in for a cup of tea or anything just straight at the door <laughs> dead in the atrium so yeah that was I mean, quite a shock yeah. It would be pretty dramatic to kind of go, oh, let's have a cup of tea and then <laughs> <Yeah>. kill someone. <laughs> or probably a cigar sings like he's I'm not sure if they're tea drinkers. <laughs> a line of Coke. Yeah. <laughs> Come in and have a Coke. line and a cigar. <laughs> Coke in the tea, as for sugar. Yeah. Like civilised gentlemen. <laughs> I, I was kind of surprised that, like, if I was Tony, I'd kind of want Manny to be with his sister, because, like, I know he's super protective and everything, but it was just a little thing I noticed, but that the same guy that Gina is with in the, um, in the bathroom stall earlier during the montage where Tony's getting married to Elvira, she's there with the, um, like, Oh no, maybe it's not the wedding bit, but at a certain point in that montage, we do see Gina with the Mm -hmm. same guy implying that they're 
that their like relationship is still continued and tony obviously hasn't killed that guy or like done anything very violent to prevent that relationship so he's clearly not based on that one little scene he's clearly not like in super opposed to her having like a romantic relationship with someone who's in sort of like the drug underworld so i'd have thought that he'd want manny to be with her personally but apparently not (laughs) i reckon he probably didn't notice anything else that was going on he's a bit thick and he's very much wrapped up in his own world he probably thought that she was just off being pure somewhere whenever whenever he's not there she's just in her bed alone probably like a cocoon (laughs) doing puzzles and writing poetry exactly yeah yeah yeah. maybe reading a wholesome novel (laughs) i thought they set up her murder to be uh like sad in quite a nice way because obviously at the start when manny rescues gina from tony it's gina that is really into Manny and it's Manny is very chivalrous in that he, you know, turns her, turns her away. So we really, we, you know, we really uh, like Manny as the audience. They really, uh, the writing makes us do that. And then, so it just sets up this death to be even more shocking because we like the partnership of Gina, I think, as the audience, Gina and Manny. Yeah. I, I ship them. That's what they say. (laughs) (laughs) I did think when I was first watching the film and, Manny's like dead on the floor and Gina t- turns to Tony and she's like covered in his blood and she's like we only got married yesterday yeah, I was a bit like was a bit on the of nose. course oh, of course yeah. <laughs> but, but then... it was so tragic I, I yeah, fully, no. I'm, I'm, I'm with that I'm okay with it because yeah but yesterday just, yeah, no, me too, actually. <laughs> imagine the frustration you get married and the very next day your husband gets murdered that's that just bummer, the worst yeah, it's a bit of a bummer. But I was actually thinking it was only today, actually, earlier today, that I, I found a new significance to that line. And that was if they're married, that means they've like pledged themselves to each other. And it's a signal that Manny's not like he's, she's not just like another girl he's messing around with. He's like pledged himself to her. And that I think part of why um, Tony was so violently opposed to Manny pursuing her is because he knows what Manny's like. He knows he's interested in women and he didn't want his his sister to be like a victim of like a basically like a plaything to him. But when they're married, that changes all that. When uh, And maybe Tony, if Tony had learned that they'd just been married, he might have even been happy because now he knows that it's not like a casual thing. Now he knows they're like, they've made oaths to each other. So maybe that maybe the marriage line isn't just to like it's not just an extra like oomph as an audience. It's like it actually totally invalidates Tony's reason for executing him in the first place. Oh, yeah, that's too right. sad. But I don't think he really understands marriage in the first place. He doesn't understand this idea of devoting yourself to someone because he doesn't ever do it. He doesn't devote himself to people. He just devotes himself to power. He, he he devotes himself to the idea of people, I suppose, but not to their actual fact, which is how he can murder Manny so easily. He's got no sense of loyalty at all. So maybe he wouldn't have understood, even if he had known. He is loyal to, from what we see of him, though, he is like loyal to Elvira, even as sort of resentful as their relationship becomes. And like, like he wants a child with her. One of the reasons why he's so like pissed off with her is because they can't have a child. So he is like, 
he is like a family man, isn't he? He massively values family, like in his in his weird, obsessive, unhealthy way. He's not like anti-family. Yeah, I suppose what I mean, he's not promiscuous. He just doesn't respect people. And I think it's the respect that he doesn't understand. Yeah, calling your wife's womb polluted isn't the best signal of respect. <laughs> <sighs> so, yeah, um, she's uh, Gina is obviously hysterical. She yeah reveals that they've just been married. Tony is, like, filled with guilt immediately. He has her taken back to his mansion in revenge for Tony's failure to kill the journalist who has now exposed Sosa and his partners to the world as drug lords. Sosa sends a Latino mercenary hit squad the size of a large platoon to Tony's mansion to kill him that evening. Sitting at his desk, snorting from an enormous, it says pile here, but I'm going to describe it as a mountain of cocaine. Tony realizes and regrets what he has done to his best friend. He takes a call from Sosa and berates him, telling him he's prepared for whatever Sosa can throw at him. When Tony is contemplating his actions, Sosa's mercenary Sosa's mercenaries breach the main gate at Tony's estate and quietly begin to kill all the guards around the mansion. At the same time, a distraught Gina, wearing only an unbuttoned sleep shirt and armed with a revolver, enters Tony's office to confront him with the truth about his feelings for her. She now realises that Tony loves her in an unnatural way and demands at gunpoint that he makes love to her. She begins to shoot at him while demanding he take her. <laughs> As Sosa, I think this is partly to do with the fact that uh, she's like loaded up with pills at this point. I think Ernie says that they've like stuffed some pills in her or something, so she'll go to sleep. And obviously, she's not taken an effective dose. A Sosa assassin hiding on the balcony, thinking Gina is shooting at him, leaps in and riddles her with bullets. An enraged Tony throws the man off the balcony and kills him with his submachine gun, creating a storm of chaos at the mansion. At this point, the mercenaries, robbed of the element of surprise by the gunshots, swarm in to attack Tony's mansion from all directions. At this like this kind of like final shootout scene is just awesome. But yeah, when Gina first appears in that room, I thought she was like a, a hallucination at first. Yeah, same. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, whoa, because and yeah, the um. The, um... I wouldn't be surprised at like the amount of cocaine there as well is clearly a new, yeah, just a very big, man. Just, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, I was thinking, so he does cocaine a lot during the movie, obviously, but I was thinking at the start, you know, in his office, he starts the first time he does it, he does lines. And then the second time he has like a box of it and just like puts it all over the table. And this one, he's literally just got one of like the kilo bags <laughs> split open on the table. And you can just see like the, the devolution of himself and the, Ascension of his addiction just through that. I just thought that now. That yeah, there's a, scene, there's a scene where he like sits up and he's got like all the powder on his nose. Yeah, he just he literally oh. sticks his face in it like um like he's just been like a clown putting cream pies on everyone. Very strange. <laughs> but he knows yeah. he's doomed at this point though. Like there's a few there's a few sort of um things which are all converging on him. And I think the main the main one in terms of his like immediate demise is the fact that he's Sosa is an enemy now and Sosa's coming for him and then he's also dealing with Elvira she's left him now she does you know after she stormed off in the restaurant that's like her final scene she and there's a, in fact there's a scene in there's a scene right before we leave New York where he's on the phone and he's trying to locate Elvira but she's just vanished she's nowhere to be seen and who knows what becomes of her if she if she marries another drug lord or if she dies or or if she turns her life around and becomes a school teacher, who knows? <laughs> well, and and now obviously there's you know he's lost his wife, Sosa's coming for him, and now he's killed Manny as well. It's just like it's all falling apart. And I think he, when he 
piles all that like cocaine on the table. It's almost like I could almost empathize. He's just like trying to get himself in a state of mind to fix things. And he's thinking he's just trying to like put the trying to stimulate his at least that's how I saw it. He's just like he's desperately trying to impose some kind of order on the chaos he's created for himself. But it's just it's too much. The chaos is like literally like banging at the door. Or maybe it's his last meal. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. But yeah, I, I think that the, the fact that he's kind of ended up pushing everyone away, and of course Gina as well, he's pushed away by murdering her husband. And by the way, I was fully hoping that she would kill him. I was very sad that she failed. But um, having pushed everyone away, he, he I, I think, again, it was inevitable that it was all going to happen this way. It wasn't inevitable that it wasn't at the same time, but um, it did. But at the end of the day, he, he's got to be so ruthless and individualistic that he's eventually going to have no friends or allies at all. And that's what happens. He runs out of allies. He's just, just got enemies now. So that's his downfall, really. And it was an inevitable consequence of what he was doing. It's exactly what happened to everyone else who died and it's happened in the biggest way to him. Do you think there's anything to what Gina was saying? Because Gina's like saying that he's got like sexual feelings for her. And I can't really say I feel there's anything to that. I can understand why she feels that. But I did you did you guys think there was anything to that? Do you think he might have had like a weird incestuous like feelings for her? Or is that just her way of making sense of his behavior um i think it could be either really maybe they leave it ambiguous because like i guess if you think from his perspective i don't know well the fact that he hasn't seen her for so long you can see why he's protective but then like the fact that whilst also being protective he you know slaps her at the same time as protecting her it's the relationship is clearly messed up i don't know maybe it's not quite incestuous but it wouldn't surprise me as another like uh leap from that from like hitting it to that it just seems completely messed up so it just wouldn't surprise me if that makes sense yeah i i don't think it's framed as incestuous but i suppose that's maybe that's me i i can't interpret these things but he has got a messed up relationship with her that's that's definitely clear but i i do think it's more about purity than than any other kind of desire he doesn't want anyone's hands on her as it were so i think that's the key thing there but uh, yeah it's understandable why why she said that and to be honest that wouldn't be much more messed up than the way he was already treating her because either way he's not really treating her as properly human as a proper person who's capable of making their own decisions it's all about sort of objectifying her in in weird and freaky ways yeah it's like he uh he gave her everything that didn't matter and took away everything that did oh so oh just a little a little uh, bit of trivia about this about this one segment of the film when all the gunmen are rushing in to sort of kill him apparently steven spielberg guest directed part of this sequence it was just something i read when i was looking into the film which i thought was interesting yeah so as all 
Oh, sorry, Tristan. Yeah. I, I like this bit. I, I like that he's kind of fled through all this, all this war and conflict, and then it ends up coming back at him. And it literally is war that's coming back at him because it's not like a few hitmen. It's a giant army of people all in his house. He can't escape. It's, it's in his sanctuary. It's got through to him. He's been running away, but it's in his, it's in his room. And now he's dead. Yeah, and it's almost like because the Sosa has sent the men to kill him because Tony has failed to prevent the revelation of their world. So, I mean, when the guys first showed up, it shows here in the um, it shows here in the notes that says here in the notes that it was like a Latino hit squad. But I just interpreted it as like it. It's just because it, when we go to Bolivia and we see all those chairmen and we see we see Sosa and then there's like the Bolivian general and then there's people who represent the US government as well and when all those guys show up I was like I didn't necessarily think it was Sosa's men I just thought they were like a collection of all the powerful people that Tony had pissed off in this world and so it's it was almost like the very embodiment of the industry which which he had profited from was now come to destroy him so now, as all his men are being killed, including Ernie and Nick the pig, Tony, still delirious from the cocaine, leans over Gina's dead body, begging for her forgiveness. At the same time, the mercenaries break into the mansion. Chi-Chi open fires with an Uzi as he falls back and ends up banging on the door to Tony's office. Unfortunately, Tony does not hear him. That's what the no- he does hear him. Unfortunately, yeah, he Tony- does. yeah, unfortunately, Tony does hear him, but doesn't let him in. Chi-Chi is shot in the back and Tony sees it on the security cameras. As the hitmen prepare to storm into his office, Tony finally snaps out of his drug-induced state, arms himself with an M16 assault rifle with a undermounted grenade launcher, and blows open the door. Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think he might still be somewhat under the influence of drugs at this point. <laughs> I think you're probably right. Yeah I, don't, yeah, I think it would take more than a strong coffee to bring him back to his senses. <laughs> A huge climatic, a huge climactic gun battle ensues as Tony takes position atop the grand staircase and guns down dozens of Sosa's men who try to storm the balcony. Tony is hit a number of times by return fire, but he keeps shooting. With most of Sosa's men dead, Tony, strung out on drugs, defiantly yells out at the assassins, not realizing that the skull. Oh, was that the skull? I thought that was Sosa. I thought Sosa killed him. Oh, All right. That was the sc- I, I, I knew it wasn't Sosa. But I was wondering who it was. Oh, right. Yeah, the skull has sneaked into the room behind him. The skull shoots Tony in the back with a 12-gauge shotgun. Tony falls off the balcony and into a reflecting pool at the base of the grand staircase. In the final shot, as the skull and the few surviving assassins look on, Tony Montana lies dead, face down in the bloody reflecting pool, which is located below a large brass globe that says, the world is yours. Da-da-da-da, that is the end. Mm, that was what an ending it was. That final bit where he's, he's got massive rifle and he's just unloading it into all these guys it was that is like when i talk about like the the badass feeling that this film evokes this was like a perfect example of it when he's just there just like gunning them down and he's like he's getting shot and he's just like he's just like screaming at them and just like taking the bullets like he's, he's not even human anymore he's just like some demonic force of nature um it's like you know what it actually reminded me of and this is sort of straying a little bit from the film, but like in terms of what's going on in the US now with like the president and it's just like all these bullets have been, all these people are taking <laughs> shots at him. Yeah, and he's just standing there just absorbing them, just like screaming into the void, like, like I will not die. <laughs> I like that. So, so badass. For, for Montana, that is. 
Yeah. So someone no, needs to, um, to go. Go on. I was just gonna. <laughs> I was, I was gonna, gonna say it goes. In, it kind of just devolves into not stupidity, but it's very corny at the end. Like he literally, he's not human anymore. He just like after everyone in the film has died with like one to two bullets, he takes literally about twelve. <laughs> and all the all the mercenaries are from the stormtrooper training academy. They miss everything. It goes completely <laughs> like I think. I've seen reviews say it goes like a bit B movieish, and I, I think that might be the, the B movie bit where it just kind of go a bit um a bit crazy. Not actual the beat the flying B movie. But the B bit in the <laughs> oh, last movie. Don't it's, remind it's, us. It didn't that. go just go. That's, that's what I'm recommending that. next week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was a very funny, well not funny, but cathartic ending, and uh, yeah, very cool as you say. I thought like the visual he's, effects he, were cool as well. Like, I, oh, sorry, sorry, John. Well, I was just going to say maybe he's lost so much humanity, like that makes him almost like immortal in a way. You know, yeah, maybe yeah. it's a metaphor. Mm, but yes, good. go on, Ali. And the drugs as well. The loss of humanity. Yeah, sure they help. And yeah. being completely numb <laughs> from that mountain in his office. Yeah. Well, I just thought it was just so like. I don't know the way they like the all just the shootout I thought was really cool like and the way he just uses that rifle I don't know I just thought it was like a really sometimes you watch action sequences from like old films and you just don't feel it don't you know they produce mm. some really like brilliant action scenes today and it, with you know they use like music I think music is a massive part of like action in today's in today's movies but considering this film is like early eight it's like 82 83 so it's not even like it's very, very early in the 80s, and I just thought it was like a really brilliant, and it still stood up even like 40 years later as a, like a really cool little action sequence. And then there yeah, is the. I feel like it's just good fun as well. It's just very good fun. It's not trying to be like super dramatic and action. Well, it's just good fun action. It's not trying to be any more than it than it is really. Which yeah. I quite like. It's not overly chore- choreographed either. Like sometimes you see action sequences, and it's like. Like the Matrix, for example, where it's like, you know, I'm thinking of that scene in, the, in at the end of the first Matrix where it's very choreographed. There's lots of movement and they're jumping behind pillars and jumping out and aiming and there's lo- loads of stuff going on. This is just him standing at the top of a chair, uh, standing at the top, the top of a staircase, screaming and just firing his gun from the hip for like five minutes until eventually he is finally taken down. But it's he's taken again. He's taken down. He's taken down by someone shooting him in the back like stabbing him in the back it's like the worst way for him to die he would have hated that he would have preferred like for someone to have shot him like uh, in the front but the fact he's shot from behind is he's killed by like deception and duplicity he didn't see that guy coming he was like a stealth assassin i think he would have like really hated that and then he falls very poetically face down into that like into that into that pool and we see the final globe with the world is yours written on it i thought that was a really it's just like a really cool way to end the film what i liked yeah i liked how um skull the skull if that was the assassin who uh, murdered tony i like how he stands where tony was standing for the final shot and in my mind um if anyone's gonna take over tony's empire it's the skull and I think it's it's kind of 
the cyclical nature of things um of you know no no one in this business lasts forever there's always someone who's going to usurp you and so i like i think i feel like i like how the skull stands where tony stands uh yes so i think um, yeah that's a really cool point john i didn't i didn't really think of that but yeah it's good symbolism how he just like stands there where where tony once stood so what did we final thoughts about the movie uh would you like recommend this to a friend because i definitely would i think this is like a really fun movie it's a long movie but it doesn't feel as long as it is you know compared to like some of the films we've done before like the pianist which is a long film and it feels like a long film because it's a very deep intense journey this is kind of equally as long i think as the pianist but it feels shorter it feels a lot shorter than it actually is yeah i feel yes. like just because it's so fast-paced the pace never really drops it's always like there's action a lot the story's always progressing it's not like a very slow burn film at all it's just um yeah very fast-paced that probably keeps to probably keeps it fast yeah yeah it's remarkable <clears throat> that it's so long and yet i still sometimes felt as though i was struggling to keep track of it a little bit just in terms of all of the various elements i mean i don't think those are as as important specifically as the whole character journey but uh i, I did lose track a bit because it was it was quite fast paced even though it was really long so i suppose that is to its credit should we so should should we finish off by giving it a rank out of 100 and uh i guess if we've got anything fine like like a way of summing it up what would we what would we give it but yeah out of 100 owen do you want to go first i would give it um i'm thinking just shy of 90 maybe 87 i just thought it was very strong good good fun film cool just very enjoyable yeah a fun film to watch and yeah i, I like the the interesting character progression in it and stuff as well it um leaves a lot to think about with like the critique of the american dream and stuff like that yeah cool film John, do you want to give us your ranking? Uh, yeah, sure. I, yeah, I, I'm in pretty much total agreement with Owen. Yeah, uh, about yeah, 87, 88. Uh, you know, maybe a 90 if if I'm if I'm pushing it. Uh, but yes, it's very good. Interesting. Um. I'm going to go slightly lower. I, I think it was good and I enjoyed it. We've watched some really seminal films in this in this podcast. And I'm not sure if this is the most seminal film we've watched. I, I would recommend it because it was a great way to spend three hours. Um, but I, I don't know if I found it quite as thought-provoking as some of the others. It's still quite thought-provoking, so I'm still giving it a respectable score of about 74. I'm going to give it yes yeah i think i'm gonna give it like 82 83 maybe a bit higher somewhere around there like mid 80s i think i think it's just like such a good time i think if you want like a really good story of like rags to riches if you want insight into like the criminal underworld if you want an exploration of the you know the 1980s drug trade then this is like this is your film, basically. I think Al Capone is like Al, Al Pacino. 
What's the name of that? Al Pacino. That's the, <laughs> Al Pacino. I, think, <laughs> I think I've referred to him as Al Capone a few times in this. Al Pacino. I think he's like a really good actor. I think he plays Tony Montana brilliantly. I think the, yeah, it's a really, I can totally understand why this has become like a cult classic and why I see those bloody posters everywhere. Those bloody black and white posters of Scarface <laughs> dawning so many bedrooms. And I'm thinking of investing in one myself because I, like, <laughs> I, I I like this I like this character I wouldn't like him to be my mate in real life but I'd want him on my side in a fight <laughs> yeah yeah so, um, invincible. pretty much yeah yeah if, if bloody there's a bloody Latin like mercenary hit squad coming to my house I'd like him yeah, by my side with his rifle yeah Anyway, um, so thanks for doing this, guys. This was a really good film. I'm glad we did this one. Owen nominated this one. It was your third one on the trot. So I guess we're going to see yeah. uh, if your if your success continues yeah, with the nominations. You got the win streak. Yeah. Yeah, have good taste. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just, I mean, I don't. I just go for the best films that are regarded to be the best. I haven't watched any of them beforehand, but I'm lucky in that they're well, good. Yeah. The popular consensus has good taste, then I suppose. <laughs> yeah <laughs> they do indeed awesome right thanks for doing this guys take care